Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndieSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame made easy work of Wake Forest on Senior Day. Now the Irish will head to Stanford after Thanksgiving to end the regular season. But we can't help ourselves from looking further ahead for the Irish. A Notre Dame win on Saturday likely puts the Irish in the ReliaQuest Bowl against an SEC opponent. So we reached out to someone deeply familiar with the conference, Ryan Fowler, radio host of the game on Tide 101.9 in Tuscaloosa. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Hey, you are more than welcome. It's always good to to visit with those who love college football the way that we do in the South. And uh, uh, it is it's our life. Fifty two weeks out of the year, four hours a day. People don't believe me, but uh, we literally talk nothing but college football. Four hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. And I'm sure it's probably the same there in South Bend. <laughs> absolutely. And they probably chase you out to the parking lot too, talking football still. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Normally, well, now everywhere I go, it's can you beat Georgia? That's one of the topics. Uh, I mean, I can go through a Chick fil A drive through and they're like, hey, what do you think about the game? What do you think about the game? <laughs> and uh, this Alabama team, and I'm sure we'll get into it, they, they've kind of flipped a corner a little bit and, uh, we're, we're seeing some production from this Alabama team, but it's, uh, you know, we have a great job. We get a chance to cover college football for a living. Well, they're lucky they don't play New Mexico State this year. Ha! Yes. <laughs> Listen, we have we have owned that one, okay? That one is one of those that, you know, anytime your rival loses to New Mexico State, a team that was 0-26 against Southeastern Conference teams, and they beat your rival – uh, you give them plenty of ammo, right? I mean, we've been throwing some stones at those guys for the last couple of days, and we've had a lot of fun. Uh, it is, it, it's no doubt uh, an embarrassing loss when you look at it. And we kind of <laughs> think that maybe they spent two weeks preparing for Alabama and skipped over New Mexico State. And that was not very smart for the Auburn Tigers. Yeah, I don't know that it'll help them that much on Saturday either. But uh, <laughs> Ryan, uh, we as reporters covering Notre Dame are tantalized by the potential of Notre Dame matching up with Brian Kelly and LSU um, in the bowl game. What do you think of the job he's done taking over that program and the season the Tigers are having? You know, I made a statement when he got the job and uh, I may have featured Eric, uh, you know, when he came down to, to the SEC and I made a statement that he would win a national title in his first five years there's been an adjustment period, you know, think about that honeymoon year. Number one, they beat Alabama. And, you know, we, we could all remember when Brian Kelly was the coach at Notre Dame in 2012, where things didn't go his way then. And, you know, those halftime comments that got him into the little bit of doghouse with, you know, the Irish fans. But uh, um, I thought that, that his team would be even better this year, but that defense is bad. I mean, guys, it is awful. Um, it's an embarrassing group. I can't even really describe how bad that defense is. As much as, you know, Jaden Daniels has got the publicity, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, he's in this Heisman conversation going into the final couple of weeks. But that defense, I mean, can, can you guys give me some insight from a Notre Dame perspective up there? Does he just neglect that side? Did he not realize that they were going to play, you know, on that side of the football that there is three phases, right? offense defense special teams that defense i just don't know how you can be that bad on defense i mean that that group is is just it's just not a respectable group um they don't tackle well they just don't seem like they're very you know very coached very good and i've got friends of mine that i know that are part of that you know coaching staff um you know pete jenkins is a guy that is, is a veteran he came in as a mid-year consultant was hired as an analyst simply because of their defensive line production. Uh, but the entire secondary, I mean, there's there's a lot of money to be made against LSU's uh, offense. And, and really, that was a turning point for Alabama. That game uh, was a turning point. And, and whether it was fool's gold or not, it was a confidence boost uh, for, you know, Alabama going up against LSU's defense. Uh, but their offense is as good as advertised. It's a hard offense to stop. And you know, Jaden Daniels is so mobile, and, um, you know, it, it's a challenge. But, um, you know, the thing is, is they can't really slow anybody down uh, enough for their offense to, you know, quality teams. Yeah, they can beat, the you know, the, the smaller teams or, you know, kind of the middle of the road teams. But it's hard for them to beat elite teams. I mean, they, you know, they couldn't beat Ole Miss on the road. 
Um, obviously, Alabama gave us some trouble, and um, you know, but that that LSU offense is just as as good as bad as the the defense, if that made any sense. But uh, LSU, uh, Brian Kelly, I, I think is probably down in Baton Rouge. Probably not that they're gonna, you know, but that honeymoon's over. It's over because uh, those Tiger fans want more than just eight nine wins in Baton Rouge. <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether to answer the question you asked real early in that I, I we both kind of smirked because I Brian noticed Kelly that. I does, noticed that. Yeah. Well, they they do philosophically defense is important to him, but you you were a couple years removed when they hired Brian Brian Van Gorder to be their defensive coordinator for two years and a third of a season, and it was some of the worst defense that Notre Dame was reminiscent of what's going on at LSU. And then they hired Mike Elko and then they went yeah, back he, to be he, he team. He hired three straight defensive coordinators who became head coaches, Mike Elko, Clark Lee, and Marcus Freeman. So he, I don't know what – he lost his touch apparently down there at LSU in hiring defensive coordinators. Well, but, he's going to have to go answer. out and get the – Yeah, he's going to have to go out and get the late defensive coordinator because in this league, you'll get chopped up very quickly. Uh, you've got to at least be respectable on the defensive side of the football. And right now, the LSU Bengal Tigers, they're not uh, respectable. So, and and it, I think a lot of LSU fans feel like that they wasted one of the most offensive, you know, efficiency team that they've ever had. And they literally threw it away and they couldn't do anything with it because that defense is so bad. And see, here's the issue. Is when you've got them like LSU, like Alabama, like Notre Dame, Ohio State, Michigan, um, that in this transfer portal era that we live in, if you're coming out of spring and you know that you've got a bad group, then you got to go fix it. Now, if you're a smaller team and you can't get any of the transfer talent, then then we can understand that. But you knew coming out of the spring practice that you were going to be deficient and a couple of those groups on the defensive side of the football, then that mulligan is taken away. You've got to go get some players to to fix it. And Brian Kelly has has not been able to do that. Um, and and we'll see how much of a big improvement they can make up, up next year. They're going to have to recruit better, going to have to develop those guys as well. So Notre Dame, most likely bowl scenario right now is the ReliaQuest Bowl, and they would play an SEC team and the two that seem to come up most often is LSU and Tennessee. Having seen both of those teams play Alabama, now keep in mind Notre Dame is much better on defense consistently than they are on offense this year. What do you think is maybe the more favorable matchup of those two? And then what you've seen in Notre Dame, how do you think they would do against one of those two? Well, let Let's start with Tennessee and Heupel. You know, last year had a great year. This year, as productive as it was last year, and some of that simply, you know, around quarterback. Uh, Milton is nowhere near uh, the quarterback that that they that they had last year. So when you look at Tennessee, a little bit more balance. But if you said who would you want to play out of LSU and Tennessee, I would probably say you want to play Tennessee because I just don't think they're they're the the part that. LSU is as, is as good on offense as advertised. I mean, they can put up some points. Um, they've got speed. They've got big wide receivers, got a big tight end, uh, and a pretty decent offensive line. So if you were asking a preference, I, I would think that would be the, the area that I would, I would say you probably want to play Tennessee. Um, you almost wonder if, if, you know, when you think about Josh Heupel, and, you know, I always think about programs – and he kind of fits the NFL model. And the other part that could be kind of into that, not that, you know, he's got to leave, but but keep in mind, you know, there's a lot of people that thinks that he fits that NFL. Could some of that buzz be out there? Uh, there's a lot of coaching vacancies. I don't know what you can accomplish at Tennessee. I know the 12-team playoff is there. Their recruiting base is not uh, that great, you know, in that state. And uh, – uh, so uh, hopefully that didn't interrupt you guys. My phone was blowing up, but people want to talk about Alabama football. But uh, 
So I apologize for that. Hopefully that didn't interrupt. But uh, yeah, when you look at Josh Heifel, I think that could be, you know, a big part of it, right? I mean, that could be a, 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 a part of a conversation is if he feels like he's reached the ceiling at Tennessee, because like I said, that recruiting base, that state is growing. And I think maybe five to 10 years down the road, Nashville's just busting when we talk about growth in population. Um, and, and so when you look at, you know, the guys up there, I don't know if that recruiting base, you got to have a foundation and they don't really have that foundation. I almost wonder if Josh Heupel would consider other job opportunities. Now, Tennessee fans are not going to want to hear that, but I mean, he's walked in in two years. They've had a pretty, you know, pretty productive uh, couple of years. So when you, when you back up, um, you know, I almost think about that, but if you ask me the preference, I'd say you want to play uh, Tennessee. And I think you could probably fix some stuff. If you're LSU, let's say you have 30 days in bowl practice to kind of, to, to get some things worked out. Um, LSU may improve uh, during that bowl practice and get back to some fundamentals that they've not been able to focus on during the season. I would say Tennessee. Ryan, as we were keeping an eye on the Alabama season, especially early on, um, Notre Dame fans were interested in, okay, how does offensive coordinator Tommy Reese do? What becomes of Tyler Buckner as, as a potential starting quarterback down there? And the Alabama offense did not start off on, on a good – on a good note, uh, and uh, we were seems... about ready to ship him back to South Bend. Okay, I mean, <laughs> we were about ready to pack him up and go. Hey, go back to South Bend. We we don't really need you, but uh, he's turned a corner. I'm sorry, I jumped in on your question. No, you're good. And, and at that same time, Notre Dame fans liked what they were seeing from its new offensive coordinator, Jared Parker, and I think things have sort of flipped. Where Tommy Reese has Alabama's offense heading in the right direction. And there hasn't been the sort of development with Notre Dame's offense with Jared Parker. Can you just describe what has happened with Alabama's offense with Tommy Reese in his in, in his first season down there? Well, I, I think when you look at Tommy Reese, as you said, there was some growing pains. But to be fair, he was replacing a lot of that offensive line. Uh, there was some guys returning, but he was trying to figure out what Jalen Milrow was capable of doing. And I think a credit to him because. You know, anybody that has got an offensive philosophy, if everything goes well, you know what plays are are great and good plays, and, and you feel like that you can run your offense. But I think any sign of a great coach or a great coordinator is they adjust to their personnel. Tommy Reese just did that. And this offense is dangerous in Tuscaloosa because of the mobility of Jalen Milrow. We talked about LSU just a couple of minutes ago. You take Jaden Daniels' mobility away, and let's say that you just say, okay, you just run your offense, but you're not able to escape. Well, that takes a big part of that down. They finally embraced who Jalen Milrow is as a quarterback. He's no doubt as improved as a passer, but he's added that mobility. He's now running the football. And Tommy Reese has taken that and adjusted, you know, to his skill set. This team has grown up right in front of our eyes. And that's the reason why. I think uh, Alabama, you know, can now compete for a championship, maybe an SEC championship. If they win there, maybe they could find a way to get in the playoffs. This team could be very dangerous. Uh, and it's all a credit to Tommy Reese. Now, let me kind of also add this to it, just as a little bit of a praise, okay? This is not just me praising Tommy Reese. The Frank Rolls Assistant Coach of the Year Award goes to the top assistant coach in all of college football. Kevin Steele has came into Tuscaloosa, and he's fixed Alabama's defense. We were having a lot of the same problems for several years under Pete Golding, who is now at Ole Miss. The defense just seemed did not seem to be in sync. It was just a, a defense that really struggled uh, tackling. I mean, compared to an Alabama standard. Yeah, compared to everybody else, it, it may be okay. <laughs> Kevin Steele has came in. He's fixed the defense. Well, I thought he would be the nomination coming out of the, the school. And it's actually right the opposite. It's Tommy Reese that was nominated. And Nick Saban talked about that on Monday, why he nominated Tommy Reese. And he talked about, you know, what he's been able to do. Kevin Stills a veteran coach. He'll always get credit. But on this career projection from Tommy Reese, I, I think it's Nick Saban given the stamp of approval because those recommendations, those nominations come from the school. That tells me everything I need to know, that how much they respect Tommy Reese. And – 
you know, it, it's been a lot of fun to watch him, you know, grow in this, you know, Nick Saban system. And I think developing the quarterbacks, but because it's more than just Jalen Milrow. When you see Ty Simpson, he doesn't look like the same player that he did against South Florida. Uh, you look at, you know, I keep hearing a lot of great things about Dylan Lonergan, and all that goes back to, to Tommy Reese and understanding that position uh, and being able to coach these guys up. So, you know, I would give Tommy Reese probably an A minus B plus. There's some things that certainly in the part of the first part of the season that was a little rusty, uh, but so far so good when when you think about the latter part of the season. Now, you know, talk to me in two weeks because I know <laughs> Alabama fans, if they go over and, you know, get killed by Georgia, then, you know, they'll throw him to the wolves. But uh, right now, uh, a lot of people are pumped up about what he's been able to do with this offense. Before we kind of circle back to Tyler, the Tyler Buckner part of that, I'm wondering if you had to make a prediction for next year, do you think Tommy is back at Alabama or do you think he – goes to the NFL, or do you think he tries to get a head coaching job? You know, a lot of times Nick Saban wants these coordinators to stay um, minimum of two years. Uh, that doesn't always happen. I would think that Tommy Reese would be back for another year, but I, I can't say that with 100% certainty. It's just, you know, a prediction. Right. I, I would think that Nick Saban would have said, hey, you know, we, we want you. You know, I'm not sure he says minimum. And Nick Saban has never been one of those guys. I'm talking about two years for a parallel job, right? Just a job that is that is equal to it. If he gets a head coaching job or someone offers him, then I don't think Nick Saban's going to try to hold him back. Uh, I, I don't think that would be the case. But, you know, we've had coaches that have come in and said, you know, like Bill O'Brien. Uh, talked about. He said it was a promise that I made to Nick Saban. I wanted to fulfill that, that I wanted to come to Tuscaloosa. Um, if I was not offered a head coaching job, that I was going to stay here. And and I, I would imagine Tommy Reese, if I was predicting, I'd say he'd be back. And I think, you know, you think about Jalen Milrow returning, you think about because he could really ride this wave because this offense is, is a lot of youth out there. So when you start looking at this offense, he could really ride it to a very productive season next year and we could be talking about you know maybe getting some big time recognition if he's able to do it you know what if they go on to win a championship what if they go on to you know to, to win a national title and you know I've not completely shut the door on Jalen Milrow as a Heisman finalist not as a winner but as a finalist or maybe in that top five category I'm not sure you know how the voting will, will stack up you know you start adding all that in and you start thinking about next year uh, this team's going to be pretty dangerous because they're really young. And I think Tommy Reese would be a huge part of that. Ryan, as Eric mentioned, you didn't, you didn't mention Tyler Buckner when you were talking about the quarterbacks and it was, um, it's definitely a gamble when he decided to leave Notre Dame and go to sure. or Alabama. We uh, wondered what would become of that. Tommy Reese was someone who recruited Tyler Buckner from an early age in high school. And that was the guy he wanted. Um, and even, J.J. McCarthy was in that same recruiting class, and he uh, was very interested in Notre Dame as well, but Notre Dame pushed its chips in on Tyler Buckner. Why do you feel like it hasn't necessarily worked out for Tyler Buckner down in Alabama? Well, I, I think coming in, you know, he probably had a little bit of a delay, right? He didn't have the spring to go through. Um, you know, I want to be fair to him, but it looked like to me that the speed of the game was a problem for him. Uh, and and I'm not saying, you know, who knows? I mean, we, we're watching, you know, quarterbacks that transfer and, you know, they're able to do some special things. Nick Saban gave him a shot. Um, I, I don't know why, you know, the South Florida thing didn't work out for him or, you know, uh, Ty Simpson. But there's some skills there. I, I'd almost – See, the problem is, is we don't talk to any of these guys, okay? Mm -hmm. They they kind of prevent us. I'm not sure if it's that way in South Bend, but I almost wonder if Tyler Buckner wants to get into coaching. I don't know. There, there's just something there that – now, this is just from my perspective because I think about, you know, Gardner Minshew came to came to Tuscaloosa on uh, you know, a transfer option, and then Mike Leach offered him at Washington State, and he leaves and goes to Washington, Washington State. Now he's in the NFL. He's playing and starting – but I think um, uh, when, when you back up and you think about him stopping in Tuscaloosa, it's a part of his resume. I'm sure he probably – listen, if you had told him he's going to be the third-string quarterback or 
You know, if you think about last Saturday, they were playing Chattanooga. You had Jalen Milrow got the start. Ty Simpson was the backup. And then Dylan Lonergan came in and also completed some passes. So you almost wonder, well, he's already used his redshirt year, right, at Notre Dame. So he's a redshirt sophomore or is he a redshirt junior? So he's got he's some eligibility. He's a redshirt sophomore I, in terms of NCAA eligibility this year. Okay. So then, yeah, you think about that. I wonder if Nick Savage just not didn't play him. Because uh, I was trying to figure out why that was too, um, of why he chose not to play Tyler Buckner. Because I thought, you know, he might get a little bit of reps against Chattanooga, but he didn't. And uh, so – when you look at him, but I've, I've, I've heard all things, you know, positive around a quarterback that is a team player. You, you've heard some good things about him and helping the other guys with game preparations, doing his job. But, you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, he thought he was going to be able to come in here and compete for a, a starting job. And he did initially. I mean, in the fall camp back in August, I was hearing a lot of rumblings. Hey, you know, this guy really – you know, turning some heads in Tuscaloosa. But for some reason, he just never was able to work out. And, you know, I, I don't know if he's, you know, if I was a betting guy, I would say that the transfer portal is probably an option for him. They got another hot shot coming in, uh, Julian Sayan, which is one of the top quarterbacks in the country uh, from high school. Uh, so I would imagine that, you know, that, that room's going to be pretty crowded. Uh, but uh, who knows? If he wants to get into coaching, he may stay here and take a lot of notes. Interesting. Um, with the the Tyler Buckner thing, I think through through us a little bit. I wanted to ask you, just from a distance. I mean, I know how tunnel vision we get with the teams we cover and the opponents on the schedule, but just Absolutely. kind of looking at Notre Dame from afar, what's kind of your general impression of where the program is, Marcus Freeman and Sam Hartman? Just a quick thumbnail on what you your impressions of those elements you know I thought Notre Dame would be further ahead maybe than than what I thought um I I thought okay you know we we you think about the Irish um you know it's almost like a team and I like what Freeman brings when you hear him you know, in the media availability, like I said, cover, as you said, tunnel vision. I like the way you describe it because we do. I and mean, we get blinders on. And, you know, a lot of people may or may not know this. When you go and you cover a team, you're there two hours prior to the game and you're there two hours after the game. So you miss a lot of football um, that you're not able to catch. But I thought, you know, when you look at the Irish initially, you know, they were a team that might be a part of the college football playoffs. Uh, and, and for some reason, that's just not been able to materialize. When you look at that football team, I know you kind of gave us some reasons why, but I, I like Freeman. I think he says a lot of the right things, but how has he done in recruiting? Because that, that may be a question that you guys may be able to answer, because in this current system we live in, some of the great coaches are not able to, to connect all the dots simply based on recruiting. Um, so that may be a question. If you guys can help me answer that, because – to me, long term, is is he the is he the right fit? Because it seems like he is from my perspective. Um, like I said, I, I like the way he handles the media. I like the way that you know he presents with his football team, um, and, and he's got a lot of energy, uh, which is a good thing. Tyler, do you want me to take that answer? Or do you want to? Uh, you can go ahead. I think um, Marcus has recruited at a pretty high level, not an Alabama level which we get thrown at us all the time but i think better than brian kelly consistently than brian kelly did i think that with this particular team the offensive coordinator hire of reese's successor was critical and i think the consensus among people on our beat were that he didn't get that right and that showed up in the games they lost. Um, you know, if they were to have gotten to the playoff this year, I don't think they match up well with a lot of the teams that are in the top four. Although Ohio State, they played them to the last play of the game when they lost and couldn't count to 11. 
Um, but um, I do think the recruiting part of it is what gives people hope about Marcus Freeman because they feel like he will get the hirings right eventually. He will get the game day operations right eventually. And that's where the inexperience shows up. But are you guys going to be patient? Because I know the expectations in South Bend. Are they? We going to are, be but the people that are our su- subscribers are always. <laughs> when, when they lost to to Clemson, I mean, it was um, you know, it was um, you know, flags were flying at half staff that day. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I mean, I mean, there's there's high expectation, rightfully so. I mean, the history proves it uh, with. 13 national titles. Uh, when you think about it, I think I got that right. I think uh, when you look at national titles, I mean, you, you, the Irish fans understand what uh, excellence looks like. And if they're not achieving that, then, then they're upset. I mean, listen, I covered some uh, dark days in Tuscaloosa. And I remember having to go through coaching searches. But I, I just feel like that from my perspective that Marcus Freeman – he's got all the energy. I mean, he seems to be a high-energy guy and – you know, that to me would pay off in the living room. And, and as you said, he, he's recruiting better than Brian Kelly. Um, you know, and I, I often wonder, not trying to connect any dots, but, you know, you ever think about how much it took to get Tommy Reese out of South Bend? I mean, so what was that? I mean, maybe there was something that maybe I just don't know, but, um, you know, a guy that played football there to be able to come to Tuscaloosa you know, it's almost a sign of going, okay, did, did he really think that he was the long-term option there? And, you know, you kind of connect some of the dots. I, I wonder what you mean influence... long-term option as the head coach yeah. of Notre Dame? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Just just whether he thought, you know, Marcus Freeman was going to be the – I mean, like, why, why do you leave a place like Notre Dame and come to Alabama? Here's yeah, – I'll, I'll let Tyler Maybe I was a head scratch. Especially... Here's my thought. I think Tommy Reese would have loved to have been – the head coach when Brian Kelly left and seeing as Marcus Freeman being in his thirties and if he was successful, was going to be there for a while, that door is closed. And I think Tommy would like to maybe be an NFL coordinator or head coach and thought what better place for me to advance my career than going to Alabama. I don't think even the most delusional Notre Dame fans think, the offensive coordinator job at Alabama and the offensive coordinator job at Notre Dame is a sideways move. I think most people look at that and look at who's been the coordinators at Alabama and say, that's a step up and that's a, that's an opportunity for him to either fall on his face, which he did initially and almost got sent back to South Bend, or that this is going to parlay into what he really wants long-term as in the coaching profession. Yeah, that's fair. I would add that, like, I I don't, me personally, I don't see Tommy Reese as an excellent college head coach. I don't think he lives and breathes recruiting, and I don't know that he has the persona, um, especially as a younger coach, to to be a head coach at this point. Um, And so, yeah, I think – there's that. And then also just sort of sort of spreading his wings, so, so to say, to to be able to accomplish something outside of the Notre Dame realm um, and sort of have some other proof that he can do things other than be sort of limited to this Notre Dame guy, um, I think was uh, something that probably attracted to him. And and to be able to learn from Nick Saban is a is a pretty unique opportunity that was probably pretty hard to pass up. You know, and I, I thought he handled the press room. We only get to visit with those guys like five minutes on, in August. Um, I thought he was pretty wow. solid. Um, and we don't we don't get a lot of coordinators. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, I thought, I'm telling you, going back to the way that Kevin Steele has turned around that defense, and I thought he would get that nomination. But when Tommy Reese got that nomination, because David Basil, which you guys may know over in, Arkansas out of Little Rock. I think it's 103.7, a big radio host over there, touchdown club that sponsors the, uh, the the assistant coach of the year award. And for him not to get the Frank Rawls assistant coach of the year nomination, not the award, but the nomination, and to give that to Tommy Reese, I think that is a big – that may be Nick Saban sucking up to Tommy Reese and saying, hey, we want you another year. We, we give you this 
uh, you know, this, this uh, stamp of approval. So I think that's a, you know, big statement when you look at Tommy Reese. I mean, I, that's good when Nick Saban and, and I'm sure Nick Saban wants to help out a young and up and coming coach. And, and you see him doing that. That's part of the, maybe a misconception about Nick Saban. He does treat the assistant coaches pretty rough. He works a lot of hours, uh, but he also, there's a lot of reward to that too. Ryan, you mentioned uh, as people who cover teams in college football, you don't, you miss a lot of college football around the country, but that's one of my favorite parts of the way Notre Dame ends its season out in California after the Saturday after Thanksgiving, because I get to watch a lot of football before that game <laughs> kicks off. I'll usually get to watch Michigan, Ohio state, Alabama, Auburn. I know we've watched Alabama, Auburn on the big screen in Sanford stadium uh, before the game. So what's your perspective on, on uh, the iron bowl this weekend? And uh, is it going to be bloody? Uh, we hope uh, from a Tuscaloosa <laughs> perspective, uh, uh you know, in New Mexico State kind of set the bar, right? You go down and beat those guys 31 to 10, uh, you can't play sluggish, right? You got to play with some, you know, some uh, level of domination uh, because at this point, it's a beauty contest for Alabama. They've got to be able to move up these poles and they're not getting a lot of help, right? You're, you're not seeing some of these teams lose. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Jordan Travis injury, Florida State's going to impact and we think we saw them slide out of that one spot uh, or one down spot. Uh, there, but when you look at, you know, not a lot of help from Texas, and that that's the part that kind of, I think Eric said a couple of minutes ago, kind of pins you in there, right? I mean, you you've got to let those guys lose. I don't see them losing to Texas Tech. I don't see them losing the Big Twelve. So I think that's one spot. Then you look at Michigan, Ohio State. So at this point, you better go beat somebody because if you don't, uh, let's say you go down there and you beat them the way because I've seen great teams go down to that stadium and struggle. It's it's a weird place to play, and it's not that big. It's just it, – it's weird. We always call it kind of a voodoo doll. I mean, it, it's it's like you never know what to expect uh, down in Lee County. So Alabama needs to go down and win by, you know, a comfortable margin and then, you know, get ready to, you know, possibly play Georgia for a chance to go to the college football playoffs. I know that'll be uh, – but I, I like the game. You know, I think Vegas is pretty close here. 31-17, 31-17 you know, 14, something like that. I think Alabama's a better football team. And uh, that's another coach that, um, you know, when you look at Hugh Freeze, uh, his hands are tied behind his back. It's it's a hard place to recruit. And, uh, you know, he, he's not off to a good start, especially with that New Mexico State. So you know, I'm sure they spent a couple of weeks preparing for Alabama. We'll see what they're made of. You're probably, when I said 20 minutes, you're probably saying these people in Indiana can't tell time, but we've enjoyed no, no, having no. you hey, so much. No, but, hey, but you guys don't change time up there, right? And, and, and We used to not. We we got in step with the rest of the country about 10 years or so ago, but oh, okay. for decades okay. upon okay. decades, we did not change. Uh, but well, we have running is... water now, and uh, and so, so my flush wife, toilets. My so. wife my wife is from the state of Indiana. I think uh, you and I have talked about this. She's from Muncie. Right. And so uh, a lot of the good folks over there that uh, we still make it up from time to time and see some family. And uh, I'm sure we'll be up in, in the next couple of years. So we always enjoy, you know, the folks up there. There's something your state does better than anybody. Okay. I, I know football is a big part of it, but that pork tenderloin sandwich, <laughs> nobody else does that in the entire country. And and when we get to craving one of those, we always have to make it back to the state of Indiana to get one of those pork tenderloin sandwiches. Nobody else does it. I don't know why, but it is it is a great, great sandwich. And uh, I know you guys are known for more than just that. But uh, as they say, there's more than corn in Indiana. That's right. There's a pork tenderloin sandwich and a pretty good football team. So. Always good to talk with you guys. You are more than welcome. Anytime we can talk football with you guys, it's always a pleasure. Well, appreciate it. For our listeners, where can they get your content? Where can they listen to you? Because they probably think this guy is way better than Eric and Tyler. <laughs> well, listen, we have a lot of fun. and uh, Listen at your own risk. Follow at your own risk on the Twitter at Ryan C. Fowler at Ryan C. Fowler. Tied 109, we're the flagship station of Alabama football. So if you ever want to stream and listen to the game, uh, but we do it every afternoon from two until six, uh, Monday through Friday, and we you know, we have a lot of fun. I mean, we we love college football. We do focus on basketball. Nate Oates has uh, created some attention around our Alabama basketball, but probably 97.25% is is all 
Alabama football and recruiting and spring football. And, you know, we talk about what the people want to talk about. So we do it uh, every single day. And I appreciate the opportunity and invite people to listen along. Well, Ryan, I would listen for four hours just to hear you say the word Alabama the way that you do. <laughs> what do, do I say it like with a with a uh, with a weird? You say Southern it like accent. you're from Alabama, which is awesome, <laughs> and Alabama, very proudly. Alabama, yes, Alabama. You know, I end my segments, and uh, the, people always laugh down here, but I end my segments saying, uh, "You're listening to home." of Alabama Crimson Tide Sports on Tide 100.9 at 1230 WTBC. So I kind of put a little ump to it, and, uh, you know, it's uh, – it's, it's awesome. It's a word. Yeah. We have a lot of energy, man. We Like I said, I mean, I've been listening to these callers predict Alabama and Auburn scores for like the last four hours. So I'm probably a little <laughs> bit juiced up after listening to these guys and trying to calm them down a little bit, but they kind of got me juiced up because I love college football, and this rivalry is a, is a special one. Did, did any of them call in from Chicago, the super fans? I think it'll be 99 to negative two. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we did have a guy from Corey from Ohio. I think his score was 66 to, to seven or something like that. I'm like, uh, wow, uh, that, that guy didn't follow a lot of history. But uh, I think it was Corey from Ohio that picked 66 to three or 66 to seven. I don't have my book right here in front of me. But, uh, you know, we did. We, we took about 30-something calls. So a lot of people predicting some big scores after that new mexico loss but uh i'll take a i'll take a 14 point victory and go home and get ready to play georgia that sounds like that ohio math that eric was taught too so i think uh that's gonna do it for us ryan we really appreciate you you joining us and uh we'll, we'll connect with you down the road before we get to our question segment i wanted to remind our listeners of a promo we're offering for inside we have a 30-day free trial available to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideNDSports.com. That will get you access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board, and you don't have to wait for the next podcast to ask us a question. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D when you sign up for a subscription on Inside ND Sports. You can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from ND Navy 86 on the Insider Lounge. And it's Tim from Kansas City, so that means he is likely a regular chat chatter. Um, Tim says, sorry in advance for the multi-part question, but rest assured I have not been drinking, spitting, or lurking about with bare feet in cold and rainy Kansas City. I am dismayed that Taylor Swift was neither at the Chiefs game nor on your aspiring to be viral football never sleeps. Anyhow, I am surprised to see Leofile on the Buckus Award semifinalist list. He is very talented, but seems frankly frequently out of position. Am I missing something? Is the out of position thing a coaching issue? Any implications for the current GA for a shot at linebackers coach? So Tim from Kansas City, if there was a fabulous prize to be given. It would be on your way to your house right now. And maybe we can work something out. Tyler James seems to think he has connections to Taylor Swift. That didn't happen, as you <laughs> alluded to. Um, as far as Maris Leofau, I, I was surprised that he made the semifinal list. Now the finalists came out since you submitted your question, and he is not one of five finalists, although... Notre Dame recruit Kingston Villamuasa is, and uh, and I think deservedly so. But sometimes the nature of these things in the early cutdowns for some of these awards, there's some mystery candidates. Uh, we saw today with the Doak Walker Award cut down to 10 semifinalists. Audrey Guestimate didn't even make that list, which was pretty crazy. As far as should... Marist have made the list statistically there's nothing to support it he's had some really impactful games he's had others where he kind of disappears and when you look at the stats across the board with much fewer reps for Jack Kaiser Marist Leofau is technically the third most productive linebacker on Notre Dame's own team the out of position thing I think you could still strike some of the of it to the uh, being a 
product of missing the entire year of the 2021 season, although we're now two, two years removed from that, but that was a very critical time for his growth. Is it a coaching issue? I think where it's a coaching coaching issue is that they've invested so many snaps for the past two years to get the player that they thought he'd turn into be. And, and I think, um, you know, if he does come back, it'll be interesting to see what his role is. As far as Max Bulla, who I won't call Shane today, <laughs> um, I would think he would get a look for linebackers coach, depending that's if Mike Mickens were promoted to the defensive coordinator job. I think it depends somewhat how they structure the new staff, but I think he'd be somebody that I would look at. Yeah, I, I agree on that last part there. Um, it's probably going to be determined by what the defensive coaching staff needs are next season, if Al Golden is still here still here or not. Um, the Leophile thing, his inclusion was surprising to me. Like I don't I don't think he's Notre Dame's best linebacker. It makes me wonder and believe that there are people on Notre Dame staff that believe he is. Like I, I like I don't know who like, I don't think the Buckus Award is looking at much and saying, yeah, that's the best linebacker. I think they're probably giving that feedback from inside Notre Dame's program would be my guess. Like, because it, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense when you just look at the the production. I mean, uh, Maris Leifau had half, half, the, half or less um, of the amount of tackles as some of the other linebackers that were on that semifinals list. Um like I pulled up Jeremiah Trotter's stats. He had 82 tackles, 14 and a half tackles for loss, five and a half sacks. And Maris Leifau had 39 tackles, three and a half, three and a half tackles for loss and two and a half sacks. So it's just, it's not even in the same neighborhood in terms of production. Um, I do think there's a chance that Maris Leifau comes back next season. I think he might, of the three linebackers, I know we'll, we'll talk a little about that later. Uh, maybe he's the most likely to return, but um, all three of those guys could be gone. Um, so I think he's a valuable member of Notre Dame's defense, but I don't think he rises to the Buckus Award level. And I think being out of position is a reflection of not making tackles. Like you can't make tackles if you're out of position, right? So um, I think that those those things all sort of relate to each other. Um, and uh, his physical prowess is 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 definitely tantalizing, and I, I don't know that it's always matched up. He, there are, he plays really well at times, and I think at early on in the season was playing it to that level, and I think he sort of tailed off a little bit in the back half of the season. Um, so I, I was definitely surprised, and um, we'll see if he's back again for Notre Dame next season. Yeah, if you look at his pro football focus grades, and I don't know that you would have access to, and we allude to them sometimes, I don't know that there's a player on the team who's, whose tackle grade has the extreme tacklers on the team to one of the worst tacklers, maybe even the worst in some games. And it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's, I mean, Tennessee state was one of his worst games, but I mean, it's stunning how, how the swings and his performances go. All right. Our next question is from Baba Ganoush at P-L-A-C-T underscore I-T-F-D-B. Based on play action stats for Sam Hartman at Notre Dame and Wake Forest, he appeared inefficient. Saturday told a different story. Was it due to Wake Forest running zone? If so, didn't NC State run more man, yet Hartman ran play action quite successfully that game too, didn't he? Were those most balanced outputs by offense versus power five? Tyler, I'm going to let you take this first. I've got an answer here, but I know you've watched a little bit of the film, so I wasn't. I don't have a percentage on Wake Forest zone. Defense. Yeah, I, I I did not, and it, it's it's harder to do when you're not you don't have the all twenty two um, to get the full picture of the right. coverage. But um, I I took I took uh, umbrage with the I I don't I just don't agree with. Uh, Hartman's play action stats showing that he's inefficient at it. I don't know where that sense is coming from. Um, and I looked up a bunch of stats to sort of uh, correlate with this. I, I did some dives into pro football focus because they break down play action and non-play action. Um, and th some of those play actions are RPOs too. I think that, that needs to be pointed out. Um, 2023 this season, 
Sam Hartman uh, is completing 57.8% of his passes. That's on 64 passes for 672 yards and seven touchdowns with two interceptions with a 10.5 yards per average yards per attempt. Um, the NFL rating for that would be 117.4. Um, and some context for the NFL passer rating. Um, 115.1 is the best in the NFL right now. That's Brock Purdy. Um, that's not play action NFL rating, but that's just overall NFL quarterback rating. And only six have higher than 100 in the NFL. Um, and then versus non-play action, Hartman has a 102.7 rating, um, 8.3 yards per per attempt. I mean, we could go through any kinds of different numbers, but his past, like he was 106.2 NFL rating play action in 2022, 115.7 play action in 2021. He's, he's always averaging more yards per attempt in play action, um, 9.7 in 2022, 9.6 in 2021. To compare that to college football, Jaden Daniels leads the country in 11.6 yards per attempt. Only 11 quarterbacks are higher than the nine yards per attempt overall this season. Um, so I'm not sure why there's this uh, theory that Sam Hartman is inefficient running play action because I don't, I don't see the stats to sort of correlate with that. Um, I, the man versus zone thing, I'm not sure – exactly what jared parker meant by that i think i think he was meaning that wide receivers on the outside aren't necessarily getting a better advantage of beating corners on the outside through a by play action which i think that's fair um cornerbacks when they're in man they don't care if you're doing play action fakes um but the safeties and linebackers could be impacted and right. so you so you get those guys um into the middle of the field and that makes a difference um throw to a tight end who's covered by safeties and or linebackers um, and that that guy will be impacted whether it's zone or man. Um, so I, I I didn't like that answer or or understand it totally from Jared Parker. Um, and, and that was for those who don't know, he he alluded to man coverage not being or being one of the limiting reasons that Notre Dame didn't run much play action against Clemson. Um, so um, and then NC State, if you look at the NC State play action that that NC, that Notre Dame was running, it was a lot to the tight ends. Like those were. That, that was the best game of the season for Holden stays. Um, and the tight ends were heavily involved in that game plan. I'm going to give, I, I like the detail Tyler gave you and I can't beat that. Here's my shorter answer to this question. I mean, Wake Forest slow mesh offense had a different play action concept. A lot of what Sam Hartman's doing this year are based on different concepts and I strike a lot of his maybe inconsistent numbers to the growth curve of learning a, a way different offensive system that's very unfamiliar to him that he's been doing something else for five years. I also think receiver growing pains and now growth may account for better success in the Wake Forest game. Um, and they certainly used it more in the Wake Forest game, so... Uh, th those would be my observations. Yeah, and there's definitely something to that. Like Sam Hartman is operating in different ways than he was ever asked to at Wake Forest, and that has taken some adjustments. Um, but I, I, um, I don't know. I've been pretty vocal that Notre Dame could be using play action better, and it obviously seemed to work against Wake Forest. So, whatever the reason is, I just think that it's it's a valuable tool to offenses at any level of football. And for it to be a, a small part of Notre Dame's offensive game plan doesn't make a lot of sense to me. All right, next question is from Charles W. Wolf. Do you think the improved offensive line play has more to do with the reshuffled five or just facing Wake Forest? Well, the old line was good enough to earn semifinal status for the Joe Moore Award, uh, but they've been up and down all season. Uh, as far as, so, so I wouldn't correlate it to the reshuffled five. Uh, however, Wake wasn't a stern test, but they weren't a pushover either. And I thought for the first career starts of Ashton Craig and Billy Shrouth, I would say, okay, they did better than okay. I, I don't I don't I don't know that we can tell anything big picture from that, but that was a nice first start for those guys. Yeah, I I thought it was a little bit of both. Um, Wake Forest doesn't generate enough pressure up the middle to really test 
um, Ashton Craig and Billy Strouth in that pass protection. They did a good job with what Wake Forest did. Um, I think a big thing, a big thing that played in Notre Dame's offensive line favor was Blake Fisher played one of his best games of the season. Um, he and Joe Alt made sure that Wake Forest wasn't winning on the edge. Um, Pat Coogan ended up being the only offensive lineman that was credited with allowing any pressure for for Notre Dame's offensive line. Um, so I don't I don't know that there was a drastic improvement in run blocking for Notre Dame. I think it was relatively the same. Um, I do think Blake Fisher played better um, both in, in both aspects of the game, um, and I do like the potential both of it for Ashton Craig and Billy Strouth, but I don't know that they were being significantly better in the, in run blocking than Zinzi Carell and Rockless Spindler have been at times. And um, we'll see who and what is asked to, to do this week. If Z Carell comes back after he was still in concussion protocol, but Marcus Freeman expects him back. Um, and uh, Billy Strauss should be still back out there at right guard. All right, next one is from at Dan Quinlan. Offensive line is a unique position, building a group bond over many years. What would you look for if we take one from the portal? The Marshall All-American from a few years ago didn't really make an impact over guys that were already on the roster. Thanks. Tyler is a bigger fan of, I think, taking a transfer guy than I am uh, with this particular group, with the talent that's on the roster. I guess, let's say... Zeke Corral and Joe Alt were the people that didn't return. If you could go out and get one of the best centers in the FBS, and I'm not talking the FCS, but the FBS, I would entertain that because you're going to have a new center anyways. Um, you know, Kane Madden was an All-American, but it seemed like uh, that was a poor choice for all American. He was a great story. I mean, this is a guy that didn't even get recruited to Marshall walked on and became a pretty top level SFCS player. And he was assignment correct largely at Notre Dame, but he was not a, an FBS level athlete. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't get a sniff. I don't think from the NFL. Um, and so, but I guess it served its purpose, but you'd, you don't want to repeat. I don't want to call it a mistake, but you don't want to repeat that that again. You would want to go out and get somebody that has a chance to be an All-American at center. Uh, I would prefer a left tackle over a center. Okay. Um, I think Notre Dame has plenty of interior alignment to choose from. It does not have uh, a long list of potential left tackles. Um, and you so don't think Baker or Emil Wagner or Charles Jagasaw any of those guys are worthy of putting in there? Um, I mean, if you can't find one, you have to. But um, I think if there's someone that was out there who is a very talented left tackle, um, I think that guy is probably right. better than those guys will be one next year. Um, so that that would be my my choice personally. Um, if that, if that yeah, exists, I said you I were a bigger fan than me because I'm a big fan of Emil Wagner. Um, yeah, I, I like him too. Uh, but uh, putting a guy at left tackle who has barely played um, is a bit of a risk. And uh, um, if you can get a guy who's played a lot, um, who's very talented, then I would definitely entertain that that option. I, I think you need someone who's athletic, who can um, be solid there and and uh, sort of acclimate to Notre Dame's culture. I don't I don't think that was necessarily an issue for um, no. Kane, Kane Madden, but. Um, I just don't think he was able to adjust to the, the, the playing level. And so Notre Dame would have to figure out if whoever they targeted was, was capable of taking on the, the challenges that you will have uh, at, as a left tackle at Notre Dame and say what you want for how bad Texas A&M is and has been, but they usually don't have a shortage of pass rushers. And so I imagine coming out of the gate, whoever's starting at left tackle for Notre Dame is going to get challenged. All right, next question is from at Mike DeVoy1. Assuming Billy Shrouth plays well in the next two games and in spring practice and Rocco fully recovers by fall, does Coach Joe Rudolph look at moving Pat Coogan back to center as the starter there? You want your best five players on the field at the same time as far as linemen, and that's Joe Rudolph's philosophy. And so, yes, that could be on the table, but not necessarily – um, you know, Ashton Craig is getting some valuable time right now to to 
make his bid. Again, Emil Wagner may be one of your best five next year, depending on who comes back. Where does he fit in? Um, and sometimes, you know, Harry would surprise you with who he tried at center. And even Jeff Quinn did. I, I don't know that anybody saw the Jarrett Patterson going from left tackle to center, saw that coming uh, after his freshman year. Uh, because that was going to be an experiment and he was so good on day one they're like well let's try this a second day and then mm -hmm. he never they never experimented with somebody else um, Nick Martin was a guy that kind of came out of left field in terms of being a center but I do think that your premise of Coogan possibly being a center since he's already worked there in practice before he became a starting guard I think that's possible yeah, I've long been an advocate of that, although I think I may be swayed a bit by the success that Ashton Craig is having right now at center. Um, he looks good there, so um, you'd, need to, you'd want and need to know if Pat Coogan can be better than Ashton Craig at center. Um, the best five mantra, I don't know. That might not be the case next year because I think your four-year best five linemen could be interior linemen, and I don't know um, – what what the answers are there that uh, sort of just coming it's sort of repeating what we were talking about with the previous question that I think tackle is the biggest need. Um, I mean, especially if Blake Fisher doesn't come back, um, you're you're looking at replacing two tackles. So um, I think Notre Dame has more guards than it needs, um, and there will probably be a lot of comp competition on the inside in terms of t figuring out what what they're going to do in terms of making room for Billy Shrouth and where Rocco Spindler fits in. If Pat Coogan's at center or guard and does Ashton Craig move one of those guys or, or another one of those guys to the bench. So I think there's lots to be resolved this off season as it relates to the offensive line. All right. Next question is from LDL go Irish on the insider lounge. First a shout out to last week's podcast and another offensive line question here from LDL. They are all good, but this one was best ever. As a uh, that's referring to our podcast, not the offensive line. Uh, as a follow up offensive line question, taking it to next season, who are the players who will be considered in the top five for next year's line? Carell, Fisher, Coogan, Spindler, Christoffic, Baker, Craig, and Shrouth, all with some starting experience. I try to list them in experience order and adding Charles Jagusa and uh, Emil Wagner as the most hyped of the newcomers. Any incoming Joe Alt type freshman to consider. Transfers, looking at the 2024 schedule, I would go with upside and coaching ability to figure it out on the road for the first game versus Texas A&M. I would appreciate your thoughts as always. Will we learn anything on the O-line candidates in the Stanford game or bowl game? Well, I appreciate the compliment on the uh, podcast, and Bob Morton is a really excellent guest. We try not to repeat people too often, but he is uh, easy to say, hey, let's get him on because – I really love the interactions that we have with him. So, Agreed. and you know what? He could probably pound me into the ground pretty easily. And he listens to my opinion without um, doing that. So I appreciate <laughs> that. As far as, you know, we've kind of touched on part of your question earlier here. I don't know that Zeke Carell is going to come back. Um, but I think that you've listed a lot of the people that could be in that mix and sometimes somebody comes shooting up through the ranks that surprises and I think Coogan would be the guy in this year's group that most of us didn't see coming um you know heading into spring that I would not have I would have bet against Coogan having a chance to start for example so there could be somebody like Charles Jagaza uh that could get in the mix for example he was a guy who had February MCL surgery and that kind of lingered through the summer. He was a June enrollee. He played on a really bad high school team and has tons of talent. So maybe he's a guy that could, um, you know, have a lot of growth next spring. As far as a Joe Alt guy coming in, boy, almost everybody on the team was ranked higher than him because <laughs> uh, he was a three-star. But I would say the guy coming in the door that, probably is the most college ready is Garby Lambert. Yeah, I think uh, that would be a pretty wide consensus on that with his talent. Um, I think like when I, given what we've already discussed, I figured the way to talk about the most players was to assume that 
Joe Walt, Zeke Carell, and Blake Fisher are all gone. Um, so what? Who are the top remaining candidates after those guys? Now I'm not saying all three will be will leave. I'm just saying um, this is the best way to open up the the door to talk about the most people. Um, tackles. I think it's Tosh Baker, Emil Wagner, and then uh, Charles Jagusa. Um, and then maybe Gerby Lambert. He would be the wild card there. The guards, Pat Coogan, Rocco Spindler, Billy Strouth, everyone we know of there. Um, and then center would be Ashton Craig and maybe Andrew Christoffic if Christoffic comes back. Um, and then also, like we mentioned, Pat Coogan as a potential center too. So I think those are the guys that are going to matter the most in next year's offensive line competitions. Um, and we'll see how those shake out. All right, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie, and we have two questions from Marie to close out the show. Um, of the following, Blake Fisher, Chris Tyree, Howard Cross, Riley Mills, Xavier Watts, Jordan Botello, J.D. Bertrand, Jack Kaiser, and Maris Leofau, who do you think it is most important that Notre Dame try to bring back based on any information you have and just gut feeling which of these players do you predict will be at ND next year? So um, the most important to come back, uh, I'm basing this not just on the player, how good that player is, but what kind of potential replacements they have without going to the portal. Um, I would eliminate Botello then, the three linebackers, and Chris Tyree from the conversation. So then we're down to Fisher, Cross, Mills, and Watts. I would say the guys with the least obvious replacements are Watts and Fisher. Uh, although, I mean, I'd love to have all those guys. And I'm going to go with Watts. I think that's probably the position that needs him to come back the most. Um, who will come back amongst those guys? I would say Fisher, yes. Tyree, yes. Cross, Probably not. Mills, probably not. Watts, probably. Botello, I have no idea. Bertrand, no. Kaiser, no. Leofau, probably. Yeah, in terms of the most important, I I went with Cross just because I think he's just been so good, and I think that's a, he's been awesome. a tremendous value for Notre Dame. Um, and I don't know that the people that Notre Dame has behind him will be able to play to the level he's played at this season. I don't think he's coming back. Um, it, it's not my, I, I, I would predict that he would leave. Um, and then second in my conversation was Watt. So I, I definitely understand your perspective there. Um, in terms of the guys that are staying or going guys that I think will probably be gone. Uh, Howard cross, Riley mills, JD Bertrand, Jack Kaiser, Jordan Botello stay. I don't know that I feel really confident about any of them. Um, I think Tyree would be towards the top of that list. Maris Leofau, um, then Xavier Watts, and then Blake Fisher. Um, I Fisher, I'm not sure is going to stay or go. Um, I think he's probably like if I'm or ordering them, he's probably like right dab in the middle. Um, but uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, next month or so to see what what Notre Dame's. Uh, the roster looks like going into next season, at least the beginning of the makings of the roster, because there's plenty of additions or subtractions ahead. All right. Uh, last question. Another one from Marie taking into consideration the upcoming games, the next two weekends, who are each of you predicting to make the playoff? Well, uh, so I think the Georgia Alabama winner, which I'm predicting will be Georgia, Ohio state, Michigan winner. I'm going to pick Ohio state. Washington, Oregon winner. I'm picking Washington and then Florida state or the Ohio state, Michigan loser, you know, Florida state lost their quarterback, Jordan Travis. They dropped out of the top four today. They're number five, but if they beat Florida and Louisville, would they deserve it more than Michigan given Michigan's schedule and that they only beat Penn state. That was a, Worthy team, whereas Florida State beat LSU and a Louisville team that was in the top 10 at the time. Uh, so I would go with Florida State. Um, Yeah, Georgia and Washington are the only two teams that I feel good about. Um, 
I mean, I have no idea who's going to win Michigan, Ohio State. I think Michigan might win. I don't know that Ohio State has enough firepower yeah. offensively um, to win. And, and I do think if Ohio State wins, I don't think Michigan gets in. Um, so I have Michigan. What if Michigan wins. Do you think Ohio State gets in with the Notre Dame win? I don't know. I I don't know. How, like how how much how important is a Notre Dame win? I don't. I don't they would have Penn State and Notre Dame. Yeah, but I don't know how how good's Penn State either. Really, I mean, I, we've watched these teams play, right? Well, I know, I I know mean, they haven't lost games, but I would put. I Texas realize in. Ohio State hasn't played Iowa. That the committee's <laughs> in love with Iowa. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. They would lose the opportunity to get the marquee win over Iowa by not beating Michigan. Um, so I went with Texas. I went with the wild card. Um. I didn't want to go with three of the same four teams that were in last year with Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State. So <laughs> I tried to be a little bit different. All right. Uh, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us our star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone who you shared a Thanksgiving meal with. As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideIndieSports.com. So please take advantage of that with the code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. Um, our Football Never Sleeps from YouTube will be in the podcast feed later this week, and we'll be back on YouTube Friday with our Place Your Bet segment, and uh, we'll have post-game takeaways late Saturday, early Sunday. And then, as always, we will have plenty of written content coming your way before then, even through the holidays. So stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs, and have a happy Thanksgiving.